Well, good morning, Project Church. Uh, if you could uh, grab your seats, we'll get started. Also, good morning to those of you who are playing at home. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always, uh, to once again come and open God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 11 through 40. Fair bit of content to get through this morning. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. This is what it says. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Semithrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God." But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. 
let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. If you were the head of a Jewish household in the first century, there is one particular prayer that you would have uttered from your lips every single morning of your life. It would go something like this. Almighty God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Not exactly the kind of prayer you're going to find in your average devotional book down at Kurong, but this is what they prayed every single morning. I thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. You see, the Jews, as we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, they harbored this unfortunate degree of ethnocentricity. They boasted a long heritage of the old covenant where they were the apple of God's eye. And when it came time for Gentile inclusion to take center stage in God's redemptive purposes, they were, for the most part, completely tone deaf to what God was doing. But as we enter the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, we see Luke taking out his next hammer, as it were, as if the Jerusalem council wasn't enough. And he's driving the nail of God's redemptive purposes even further by highlighting the fact that when the gospel went to Philippi, God rescued who? A Gentile, a woman, and a slave. The very people who the Jews utterly despised were welcomed into the family of God. Now, not not to be racist or sexist, but through first century lenses, if you handed Acts chapter 16 to your average betting man punter down at Randwick Racecourse on a Saturday, if they read this account, they'd say, oh, look at that. God backed a couple of roughies. (laughs) That's the idea behind Acts chapter 6. So accordingly, Acts chapter 16, we're calling this morning's sermon unlikely converts. A Gentile, a woman, and a slave. So let's pick up the story again in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, you'll know that in the night, Paul had a vision of a certain Macedonian man who was urging him to come over to Macedonia to help preach the gospel in that region. And so in collaboration with Silas and Luke, he concluded from the vision that God had indeed called him to go to Macedonia. And here they are now. They've taken a couple of voyages aboard a ship. They've arrived in Macedonia. And the question we might ask ourselves is, okay, where's the Macedonian man? Where's he at? He's not there. I mean, in terms of the vision they received, this missions trip was shaping up to be a simple case of following the yellow brick road. But they arrive only to discover there's no welcoming committee for them at all. The back end of verse 10 says they remained in the city for some days. And let me tell you, if I was on this particular journey with them, I probably would have been scratching my head. I probably would have been tapping Paul on the shoulder saying, hey, mate, tell me again, what exactly did you see in the vision? Like, it was Macedonia, right? 
You see, like what we looked at two weeks ago, this is yet another reminder of the often perplexing ways in which God leads and directs us. You ever experienced that? The big, clear, exciting 3D color vision on the front end of the journey, only to discover the occasional two-dimensional breadcrumb thereafter? It's frustrating, right? But this is often how God works. But having said all that, take a look at Paul. This man is no novice when it comes to discerning God's direction for his life. He doesn't just sit on his hands. He actively seeks out those he can evangelize. See, as I shared a few weeks ago, Paul's typical missionary strategy as he entered a city was to go and look for the local synagogue, and then he'd work his way out from there. But it became apparent to Paul after days of searching that there was no synagogue in Philippi. You see, to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men present. That was considered the critical mass in order to constitute a synagogue. So with the the Jewish population being so scarce there in Philippi, the relative handful of Jews in the area would conduct worship services by water because you needed water for some of their ceremonial rites. So with Paul's intimate knowledge of the Jewish practices, he's made his way to the riverside looking for some Jews and lo and behold, he finds his first opportunity for gospel ministry. And one of the women who was present that day, as Paul shared the good news of the gospel, was a woman named Lydia. We're told she was a God-fearer, which is that kind of halfway fence-sitting Jew that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and she was a seller of purple goods. Now, that actually tells us a fair bit about her line of work. If you were a dealer of uh, purple goods in the first century, uh, you were supplying clothing for the rich and the famous, even royals. So think less Big W, more Dulce and Gabbana. That's the kind of trade this woman is in. She's a successful businesswoman. But as Paul shared the gospel, we read one of the most incredible, even majestic sentences in all of the New Testament. It's there in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Wow. What, What a statement. But then what do we do with it? (laughs) I've shared this story with some of you before, but about five years ago now, I actually volunteered to help the red frogs down on the Gold Coast. It's probably no shock to you, but I'm not the world's best red frogger. Uh, I lack the necessary yahooing energy that often comes with the the role. Uh, I was a team leader, and whilst most teams are still continuing out past midnight, uh, I normally had things wrapped up by about 11.30. What can I say? I can't run with the young pups anymore. But one of my fellow uh, Red Froggers who I was sharing a room with that week, you have to bunk together in Surface Paradise during schoolies. And I asked him, what's your testimony? How did you come to know Jesus? What's your story? And without quoting him verbatim, he basically said, well, I I was doing my own thing. I was rebelling against God in my sin, basically just sharing a garden variety testimony, life before Christ. But then he went on to share a bit that I do remember verbatim because it struck me as being quite odd. I've never forgotten it. He proceeded to say that after years in rebellion, I saved myself. Those were his words. And then I saved myself. That's how he concluded the testimony. Sorry what? Now let's be clear. As I observed the character of this young man, the love for Christ that he displayed, and as I watched him sacrificially serve throughout the course of the week, I have no doubt in my mind that I will be spending eternity with this brother. He's my brother in Christ, most certainly. But how do we square away that phrase, and then I saved myself, 
with verse 14. The truth is we can't. You see, one of the great temptations for we the redeemed is to attribute our own salvation to our own choices, our own self-determination and our own willpower. But that's not what goes on in salvation. Now listen, it, it is absolutely true that human beings play host to the instrument of free will. Some of you may need to be reminded of that today. Christianity is not fatalism. God's sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. Every single day, you and I have choices and our decisions matter. However, with respect to God and our salvation, our hearts are totally incapable of responding to him unless he first intervenes. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. If I can just state the obvious for a moment, dead people don't choose. I've never worked at a morgue, but I'm pretty sure corpses are pretty horrible decision makers. Before Christ, such were you and I. And so was Lydia. Now listen, I I know that earlier in verse 14 it says that she was a worshipper of God, but the truth is if you hooked her up to a spiritual ECG heart monitor the day before she heard Paul preach, the diagnosis would have been asystole, completely flatlined, no heartbeat. She was dead in trespasses and sins. And simultaneously, we also can't afford to think that God decided to open her heart because of her proximity to Judaism, as though she'd somehow crossed the threshold of significant reverence. God wasn't standing there with a clipboard saying, ah, yes, I see that you've moved sufficiently towards me. Tick, yes, let's have this one made alive. No. As Paul preached that day, many people by the riverside would have heard him It's what's called the external call of the gospel, namely preaching. But as Paul externally called to the crowd, the Holy Spirit plugged into that call and he internally called Lydia. He resurrected her dead heart and because she was now alive, she was finally freed up to receive the good news of the gospel by faith. This isn't coercion. This is the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit that we call regeneration or being born Again, at a time in history when this stuff was debated in the 17th century, the canons of Dort put it this way. This divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties or coerce a reluctant will by force, but spiritually revives, heals, reforms, And in a manner at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. Or as Michael Horton put it, in regeneration, the will is liberated, not violated. Lydia didn't deserve it, but on this particular day, God graciously and unconditionally saved her. And as far as the Bible tells us, she was the first European convert in the history of the church. A woman. One despised by the Jews. Paul said it best in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Tongue in cheek, one commentator said that the Macedonian man turned out to be a Macedonian woman. She was subsequently baptized and along with her household. And she begins to demonstrate the evidence of her new life in Christ by extending hospitality to Paul and the others. Listen, that... That verse 14 should excite 
your evangelism? How can we know that our evangelism isn't just a waste of time? Well, because we can embrace the fact that making dead hearts come alive is way outside our scope of practice. That's God's job. We're just the messengers. But he does promise to use the means of our gospel proclamation to do so. So let's not be ashamed to share the gospel. Let's keep reading, verses 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, I imagine today that there would be considerable variation around the room about how we all just received the three verses I just read. Uh, For some of you, you may consider yourself a child of the Enlightenment and you've written them off completely. That's ridiculous. I don't believe in the supernatural. I'm done here. For others, well, you've maybe done the exact opposite, but maybe it's because you have a misinformed overemphasis on demonic activity, such that you think that demons are behind just about everything. You know, the the car park demon who tried to make you late to church this morning? Or the acne demon who put a pimple on your nose while you slept last night? Or even worse, perhaps you even blame demonic spirits for your own sinful behavior when what you ought to be doing is owning up to the fact that it was your own sinful flesh that made you do that sinful thing. And then for some of us, look, we read these verses and We acknowledge that they're true, but we kind of get a bit of a visceral reaction to them because we've just repeatedly seen the abuses of so-called deliverance ministry in our time. But listen, if we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, we need to have a sober grasp of what these verses point to, the reality that these voices point, uh, point to. Luke who is both a doctor and a reliable historian, tells us that this girl had a spirit of divination. In the Greek, that translates something like spirit of python or a pythonic spirit. It's a spirit that had something to do with a snake. I heard some curious sermons on that growing up. If someone had a bit of a a low time in their life, it's like, do you think it's possible you've got the spirit of python? Your faith seems coiled. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Now, commentators vary here, but the common thread is that the python was associated with the Greek god Apollo. Some say in ancient mythology that the python was the animal who guarded the temple of Apollo and that Apollo would speak to people via the python. And so it seems that this slave girl had become entangled in the cult worship of Apollo, had become possessed by a demon in the process, and now she was being traded out by her owners as a pythoness of sorts, a fortune teller. Paul is on his way to the place of prayer once again by the riverside just to do some more routine evangelism and this is what he encounters. Now what what she cries out is quite curious. Look what she says. She says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What's going on there? I mean, has Paul recruited some part-time help? Look, her confession, after all, is quite orthodox. Paul is a servant of the Most High God, and he is proclaiming the way of salvation. She's spot on. One of two things could be going on here, or perhaps a combination of both. I think it is a combination. Firstly, 
this could be a subtle form of misdirection. You see, when you and I hear the words, Most High God, we automatically, automatically think of the God of the Bible, Yahweh. But if you're your average citizen in Philippi and you hear the words, Most High God, you don't think Yahweh. You think Zeus. So it's possible that this is a form of misdirection, trying to bring confusion about what exactly Paul is proclaiming. Paul is just another proponent of cult worship. Even to say that Paul was proclaiming the way of salvation may have even been interpreted in pagan terms. But then secondly, I think running alongside that, if you have a look at the parallels in the life of Jesus, demons would quite often cry out with both anguish and very sound theology at the same time. Uh, look at uh, Luke chapter 8, should be on screen. Verses 27 through 28. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? There it is. I beg you, do not torment me. Now, I recognize that this demon isn't exactly citing the entire Heidelberg Catechism, but somehow, when Jesus or his ambassadors take on the kingdom of darkness, demons have this tendency, for whatever reason, to hum a few bars of orthodoxy. And that's probably part of what's going on here in Philippi. She's proclaiming the truth, but as R.C. Sproul put it, she did so through clenched teeth as one who hated what she was saying. And Luke says this went on for days. Now, I'm honestly not sure why Paul let this go on for days. The commentators left me hanging dry on that one. But eventually, he resolves that he has had enough of it. He's grieved by both her cries and her condition. And in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, he cast the demon out of her. And it left. And what we really need to notice this morning is that Luke does not dramatize the event. This text simply says that it came out that very hour. This is not the exorcism of Emily Rose, nor is it the 1973 film The Exorcist, which was a film so scary, I'm told, in its day that my dad and his brother slept in the same bed for a week. You look that way and I'll look this way, was their rationale. Let me ask you this morning, what level of confidence would you have if you encountered a situation like this? It's a fair question. You see, so often we can forget the delegated authority, authority that we've been given over the powers of darkness in Christ. Neil Anderson put it this way. He said, spiritual warfare is not a horizontal tug of war, but a vertical chain of command. In other words, we must never envision ourselves as operating on a level playing field with Satan and his demons. Alone and in the power of our own identity, we don't stand a chance against him. But in Christ, and on the basis of who we are in him, and in light of the authority of the risen Lord that has been bequeathed to us, Satan and his demons are a defeated lot. They must obey us. Don't ever think of yourself as at one end of a rope and Satan at the other, both of you struggling to overpower the other. No. You are in Christ who is over all. Satan is beneath you in Christ's name. I had a friend who was a church planter and missionary in Mozambique. I've mentioned him a few weeks ago. And he tells the story of a young woman who was brought to him at an altar call after a sermon he'd preached overseas. 
She wanted to respond to the gospel. She wanted to pray the sinner's prayer and receive Jesus into her heart. But it became evident to the ministry team that she was also possessed by a demon. And in the course of the dialogue with this woman, my friend had a very clear gift of discernment, word of knowledge type moment. This wasn't zealous presumption. He knew. And he gently asked her, Madam, have you been to a seance? A seance is a meeting where people try and talk to the dead. And though she initially denied it, she did confess eventually that she had indeed been to a seance. And so my friend proceeded to pray for the demon to be gone in Jesus' name, but he also led her in a prayer of repentance. And he said to her in a very calm manner, young lady, I I want you to say, I turn my back on you, Satan, and I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Can you repeat that after me? Well, as she went to utter these words, she initially struggled to get them out. I I couldn't say it. The demon was resisting her. What did my friend do? Well, he didn't go running for the candles or the holy water. He maintained his cool, reminding the demon of the authority he had in Christ, and he continued to resist him, and it fled. This woman was miraculously saved. You know why it fled? Because it had to. It didn't have a choice. Jesus said it in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Let's be reminded this morning that that statement there is an all play for anyone who's in Christ. So, the serpent was tread on, and this slave girl was graciously saved. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that she was saved, but in the context of the gospel sandwich that she sits in between the two conversions, I think her conversion's implied. That would be my opinion on that. But then, as F.F. Bruce put it, when Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. Conscious of time, I won't reread the rest of this account, but you see, the Romans in Philippi were a different breed. They were a particularly proud group, very, very loyal citizens to Rome. So now realizing that their wallets would be getting very light, these slave girls' owners dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrates and they leveraged not only the local patriotism but the local anti-Semitism to their own advantage. And they falsely accused Paul and Silas as being a menace to society, which was the ultimate no-no in Philippi. You didn't want to do that. And they cop a ripe old flogging. Do you notice they're not counting strokes either? This isn't a synagogue flogging where it's, you know, 40 minus 1. It says they were given many blows. Exact number not specified. They were severely beaten. And you also notice this is a pre-trial flogging. The idea in those days was that if you wanted to get truth out of people, you had to beat them up a bit first, and then you'd get the truth out of them. doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but this is what was done. No trial, straight to the flogging. They were then thrown in prison with their backs cut to shreds and then to add insult to injury, they have their feet put in the stocks, which may have been just an additional level of security but highly likely an additional method of torture, having their feet crushed. How would you be feeling about the Macedonian call at this point? Come over here and help us. Whack, 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 bang, into prison. That's their experience. 
Listen, the marginalisation of Christianity in the West hasn't quite reached this level yet, pre-trial flogging, but the momentum that secularism is gaining is certainly pushing us in that direction. Christians are more and more being perceived as menaces to society and I have to ask myself often, am I grounded enough in my convictions that if preaching the gospel was deemed by the state as hate speech, would I still continue to preach and be willing to go to prison for my faith? That could happen in my lifetime. It's definitely happening in the East and it's starting to happen in the West. You see, we have sat under the protection of Christendom for so long now that when the headlines come in about the marginalisation of the church and the moral decay of society, sadly, our knee-jerk reaction is to only ever think in apocalyptic categories. Yep, this is bad. Jesus will be back tomorrow. Yep, this is the end. Batten down the hatches. Jesus is coming back. We adopt this automatic posture of pessimism and forget that Christians have navigated this sort of thing and far worse for 2,000 years. We're not the first on scene to persecution. Michael Horton said, The church militant is that part of the world that has been seized by the Spirit, freely answering its amen to Christ that contradicts the no of the powers of this present age. Take a look at Paul and Silas. In prison... Backs bleeding, feet aching, praying and singing hymns to God. Whoa. What kind of interpretive grid are they operating off? They're joyfully singing, shout to the Lord, but if it were me, I'd probably be shouting at the Lord. God, get me out of here. This really hurts. This is an otherworldly response from Paul and Silas. They'd clearly embrace the principle that Paul would later write to the church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Or as the early church father Tertullian put it, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Now, suppose for a moment you're the leader of a grand empire. Some of you like that thought better than others. And you've got a bunch of very strong very capable, seasoned veteran, retired soldiers who's, who fought in many battles for you on your behalf and perhaps even gone into battles that they didn't always support. They could very quickly become a threat to your empire, couldn't they? They could very easily start an insurrection with their military experience and threaten your empire. So what are you going to do to keep them on your side? You give them a really cushy job. You see, in Philippi, that was a Roman colony full of retired soldiers on really good DVA welfare packages, if you will. And the jailer in this case is one such Roman soldier. You see, in prisons today, prison guards have a really hard job. The attrition rate is actually really high for prison guards. I mean, they really have to keep their wits about if they don't want to get assaulted. I mean, prisoners are allowed to roam around a lot more. They lift weights, play ping pong, and they can use cunning strategies to devise weapons and often attack a guard. You've got to have your wits about to do that job. But I imagine in the first century, if they're always locked up with their feet in the stocks, it's a bit slightly easier job, I imagine, less likely to attack you. This was considered a cushy job in Philippi. But this cushy job had one rule. If the prisoners get out, you're dead. That's how it operated. And so this jailer's cushy job was about to become, well, not so cushy anymore. 
God miraculously intervenes with an earthquake and employs it as the means not only to rescue Paul and Silas physically, but he's going to use it to spiritually rescue this retired Roman soldier. After nearly taking his own life for fear of his superiors, he throws himself at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, people have questioned what exactly is he asking in that question, and I I think we have to say this is so much more than an, an appeal to Paul and Silas just for physical safety. He's not just worried about the pending death that he would get from his superiors. This is a man who has probably at least heard some of the gospel message that Paul and Silas has preached. Like any prison warden, he knows what the inmates are in there for. He's just had a near-death experience and the confronting reality of eternity and judgment has gripped him. I imagine he's rightly perceived that this earthquake is a sign of vindication for Paul and Silas from God. And furthermore, in addition to all that, even if that weren't there, this is just another man who falls under the assessment of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This Roman jailer is without excuse. And so he desperately asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And after hearing the good news of the gospel about what Christ has accomplished for him on the cross, this man and his entire household were saved and baptised the third of our unlikely converts. And I'd be prepared to bet that years later, when Paul suffered a second imprisonment, he would have had this very conversion story in the back of his mind when he wrote those words in Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He had a really good case study in the back of his mind as he wrote those words. Now, before we move on, allow me a brief theological excursion here. Just a point of interest. If you look closely there at verses 31 to 34, you'll notice there's this repeated mention of the jailer's household. In verse 31, it says, You will be saved, you and your household. Verse 33, He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then again in verse 34, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And historically, this observation of the word household has formed at least part of the argument for the practice of infant baptism. This is part of the argument for it. The Greek Greek word there for household is the word oikos, and some have suggested that this word refers not only to the adults and older children in the house, but even the infants in that household. Now, for me personally, if you're asking me, I don't think that's completely silly exegesis. In my opinion, I don't think that's butchering the text at all. But if I can offer a brief Baptist counterpunch, though acknowledging there's a much larger discussion to be had, take a look at verse 32. It says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Basically, the reason there is household baptism is because there's household faith. They'd all heard the word of the Lord. Wayne Grudem sums it up this way. So we have not only a household baptism, 
but also a household reception of the word of God and a household rejoicing in faith in God. These facts suggest quite strongly that the entire household had individually come to faith in Christ. Theological excursion over. Let's read verses 35 to 40. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I began this sermon by highlighting that Acts chapter 16 is designed to show us the unlikely converts that came to Christ on this second missionary journey. Just take a look at them for a moment. This is a brand new church consisting of a retired Roman soldier, a slave girl, and a businesswoman. I mean, what kind of discussions are they having in their community group? <laughs> Sam and Anish, do you want to run that one? Like, what a weird bunch. It's a little bit like the movie Ice Age, where you've got a mammoth, a sloth, and a saber-toothed tiger all in the one herd. It's a weird bunch. Look at the collective noun Luke uses to describe them there in verse 40. And when they had seen the brothers. Luke is highlighting that these three previously unconnected citizens of Philippi can now be described as siblings in the family of God. What a story. As Peter explained last week, what connection would any of us have in the room with one another apart from Christ? Probably none. There's a sense in which we can say we're a weird bunch. Yet in him, we've been made family. Now, why is Paul being so difficult when it comes to leaving this prison? Let me tell you, if if I were him and I'm being offered freedom, I'm bolting out the door. I'm on the first boat to Caesarea. That is assuming my feet can run after being in the stocks. But nonetheless, I'm doing my best to bolt out the door. But what does Paul say? No, you put us here, you come escort us out. He's making a bit of a scene, right? Why? You see, Paul was a Roman citizen. And it was strictly forbidden to beat up a Roman citizen. If they found out that's what they'd done the men who administered the flogging would have got a flogging of their own. But they had done so without knowing of his citizenship. And it's only now, though he could have done it earlier, that he chooses to reveal it. What's he doing? He is deliberately providing political leverage for this newly formed church in Philippi. Jim Boyce put it up this way. Why did Paul insist on that? I think he had in mind the safety of the church he was to leave behind. He wanted to do everything he could to establish and protect it. And perhaps that is even why he did not declare that he was a Roman citizen when they were about to beat him earlier. He declared so in a later incident in Jerusalem. It may be that he did not do it here in order to place the magistrates in a difficult position and so provide a basis for the future protection of the church. 
Paul willingly copped a brutal beating for the sake of this newly formed church of just three members. If that doesn't echo the gospel-shaped life, I don't know what does. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ had not only saved Paul, but it had captivated his heart to such a degree that he was willing to follow in the footsteps of his Saviour and live sacrificially for the sake of God's church. 